Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. We wanted to let you know that our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief, is now the DSR Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the top stories from the war in Ukraine, plus all the top foreign policy stories from around the world in under 10 minutes a day. Additionally, members receive an evening DSR Daily Brief newsletter with updates from earlier stories, plus any new developments occurring throughout the day. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive these and other member benefits including bonus content for all of our shows, access to our member Slack community, and more. The DSR Daily Brief is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, standing in for David Rothkopf as, as host and moderator for today. David is once again in an undisclosed location. I think that might mean he's taking a nap, but I'm not entirely sure. That's okay, though, because we have with us here today several fantastic guests, some who've been on the show before, others who are who are new. So in alphabetical order, which took me a long time to put the alphabetical order thing together because I'm not so good at that. We have Max Boot, who is the Gene K. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. Hello, Max. Hi, Rosa. How are you? You're joining us from New York, right, Max? I am. Excellent. We also have Suzanne Nossel. Suzanne is the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America. She previously served uh, at the State Department senior positions and as Executive Director of Amnesty International USA. Hi, Suzanne. You're also in New York? Hi, yep. Welcome. And last but not least, uh, Angela Stent. Uh, Angela is the senior advisor to the Georgetown Center for Eurasian, Russian, East European Studies and a senior non-resident fellow at Brookings. Uh, And Angela, are you here in the D.C. area? I am in the D.C. area, yes. Okay. Well, so we have had a really eventful few days. And we've had uh, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin went to Kyiv in Ukraine uh, to, in a gesture of solidarity with the Ukrainians. We have seen a sort of upping of the ante rhetorically, both from the U.S. and from the Russians. Uh, Secretary Austin made news by saying that the U.S.'s goal at this point is to weaken the Russian military sufficiently that they will not be able to repeat anything like this again in the future which the Russians reacted to by having uh, Lavrov go out and say the U.S. is increasing the risk of a nuclear war, which didn't make me sleep any better when I saw that in the news. Um, So I I wanted to ask each of you initially just for your reaction to the last couple of days events. I mean, obviously, we could add to what I just said, some recent decisions, uh, particularly that the Germans have decided 
They are going to be sending several dozen armored anti-aircraft vehicles to Ukraine. Other countries are supplying increasingly heavy weaponry to Ukraine. So in all kinds of ways, this seems to be escalating, or, or is that wrong? Let, let me start with, with you, Max. Uh, give me your, your thoughts on that. I think Putin is concerned because he is losing the war on the battlefield, and he feels that part of the reason why he's losing it is because of all the aid that Ukraine is receiving. I think that's an accurate assessment. And so he's trying to scare the West by engaging in nuclear saber rattling. I wouldn't get overly worried about it just because I don't think he is suicidal. But I think what you've seen in the last few weeks is a definite upping of the ante by the U.S. and its allies providing heavy weaponry to Ukraine, which is has the potential to truly turn the tide of the battle in the Donbass following the Ukrainian victory in the Battle of Kiev. And I think it's it's fair to say that the Ukrainians have far outperformed expectations in the beginning of the war. The feeling in Washington, as well as in Moscow, was that Kiev would probably fall within a few days, that much of Ukraine would be occupied. And that's why the U.S. and its allies are providing small, relatively light weaponry like Javelin and Stinger missiles to the Ukrainians in the expectation that they would have to wage a partisan warfare against mm -hmm. Russian occupiers. And that, of course, is not what has happened at all, because the Ukrainians are having a lot more success and the Russians a lot less success than anybody expected. And so I think the ability and the willingness of the Ukrainians to fight for their freedom very successfully is emboldening the West and leading President Biden and others to drop some of their hesitations about su supplying Ukraine with much more potent weaponry. And I think that's, again, shifting the balance of power towards the Ukrainians on the battlefield and making it less likely that the Russians will be able to achieve any of their objectives, although it's still up in the air whether they can hold on to some of the territory they've, they've occupied or not. Angela, let me come to you next. Max thinks I don't need to stay awake at night worrying about my bunker and where to put my bunker. What's your reaction to the, to the last couple of days of news? So I completely agree with Max. I mean, this is what Putin loves to do. He's been threatening nuclear war before this invasion of Ukraine happened. He's been hinting at it since then. Lavrov hints at it sometimes. I mean, he wants to intimidate everyone. You hear, you know, places in Europe where schools are now asking parents what the plan is if there's a nuclear war. I mean, he wants people to get that scared to deter them from pushing back and fighting back at Russia. So, you know, look at it logically. If Putin were to use a tactical nuclear weapon in this conflict, how does that achieve his aims? They're trying to take territory in Ukraine. That's not going to help them take territory. Plus, they'll get blowback. They'll get radiation, you know, in Russia itself. So I think it's it would be an illogical move for him. He's not suicidal. And I think, you know what the defense secretary said when he said our aim is to weaken Russia. Well, the Russians have been saying for years their aim is to weaken the transatlantic alliance, to weaken the United States. Maybe it wasn't politically correct to say it. But yes, we would all like to see Russia unable to launch another horrendous war like this in the future. Suzanne, um, OK, Max and Angela are making me feel a little bit better because Putin's ploy was working. I was feeling scared and I was feeling increasingly scared. What's your take? I'd like to agree with both of them. And I tend to think they're probably right. At the same time, I am concerned about what the end game is here and what a kind of cornered humiliated Putin's next move is. 
He has a big ego. This was a very splashy, high-risk play that doesn't seem to be going well. His political fortunes, you know, I, I don't know to what degree we can believe what we hear about Russian public opinion. It sounds as if, at least as of a few weeks ago, you know, he had his support domestically pretty well shored up, but that can change at any moment. And, you know, what does he do if he's desperate and if he feels cornered? And I think it's not entirely knowable. I, I agree that you assume logic prevails. It's hard to see how he gains any concrete advantage from tactical nuclear deployment. It's obviously it's hard for any of us to imagine what that would entail and, and what would ensue. Uh, you know, but I also think we've suffered sometimes from failures of imagination. So I think you're right to toss and turn just a little bit. Just a little bit. Okay. What you were just saying, Suzanne, leads me to two related questions um, for all of you. And we'll start again with you, Max. What do you think Putin's endgame is here at this point? I mean, clearly at the beginning, he thought this will be a cakewalk. We will be welcomed as liberators and the West will be so taken by surprise that they don't do anything decisive, or at least they don't do anything quickly enough. And so then the facts on the grounds will have changed and I will control whether it's all of Ukraine and we get rid of Zelensky or whether it's just the, the, you know, the land bridge parts and that's good enough for me. End of story. It's now a done deal. I assume that was his game plan. Clearly, that's not likely any longer. If he is too smart to use tactical nuclear weapon, and I, I sincerely hope he is, what do you think he thinks this is going to look like in a month, in three months, in a year? And related to that, I'm also wondering on our end, you know, I, I, I look at our our diplomats, uh, President Biden, I look at Tony Blinken, Secretary Austin, and I think, what's our long-term strategy here at this point, too? And do we have one, or are we just reacting day-to-day because there's no other way to go at the moment? Max? I think it's very hard to say what the end game is going to look like, because so much of that will depend on developments on the battlefield, in particular, what's going to happen in the next few weeks, which will determine the fate of the Donbass and and possibly of Ukraine itself. And so I think it's very hard to get inside Putin's head and to prognosticate about what he will accept or won't accept. Again, part of that will depend on on the situation on the ground, because although he is deluded and insulated from reality, he has shown in the last couple of months that he, he is in touch to some extent with what's going on. For example, he understood that his forces had lost the Battle of Kiev and were in danger of encirclement. And so he pulled out of northern uh, Ukraine and basically readjusted his war aims downward. Initially, he had said he wanted to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, which was code for regime change and Russian occupation of much of the country. And now that I don't think there's much chance of that happening, I think the, the issue now is how much of eastern and southern Ukraine will Russia be able to bite off? And uh, he's already expanded somewhat the amount of land that Russia held since 2014. It's it's more now than it was on, on February 24th. And he would like to expand it even some more and, and stabilize, you know, solidify that land bridge between Crimea and Russia and, and take the entirety of the Donbass rather than the portion that he had swallowed in 2014. I think, again, it remains to be determined to what extent he's going to be successful. I'm 
I would bet against the Russians, given the military ineptitude they've shown, but it's possible that they have greater advantages in the East, and so we'll be able to consolidate their gains somewhat. I think from our standpoint, the good news is that Putin is a professional liar with no scruples and no free right, media right. or, well, no, that, that actually works <laughs> to our advantage to, to this extent, because he doesn't have to worry about placating an opposition party or public opinion or a free press. He doesn't have to worry about being fact-checked in Russia itself. And so he has the ability to sell almost anything as a victory if he wants to present it that way. So whatever happens between now and and whenever there's eventually, I would assume there will be some kind of ceasefire, which the Russians will violate, whatever happens between now and then, he has the potential just to basically lie his ass off and present it as a as a historic victory over Nazism. And anybody who challenges that narrative in Russia will wind up in jail. So I, I tend to think that's that's his most likely out. Angela, what's your take? The Russian goals at the moment, right? Yes, they couldn't take Kiev. By the way, in the end, they would still like to be able to take Kiev and affect regime change, but they clearly can't do it now. But at the moment, it's to take the whole of the Donbass. And as Max said, they've already taken a few towns and Mariupol will presumably fall to them soon. You know, a very important port now in ruins, even though there is some resistance going down there. And then they would if they could, they would move to Odessa. I mean, I think in this phase of the war, they would still like to be in a position where they can cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea and ensure that you have a rump Ukraine, which will you know, have no outlet to the Black Sea. It will be landlocked. And of course, that would have devastating economic impact. I'm not sure that they can accomplish that. And I think based on their performance so far, they probably won't. I mean, I think what's remarkable is that we have to remember that the corruption that pervades Russian society is certainly there in spades in the army. Apparently, the commanders and the soldiers, everyone's communicating with each other on WhatsApp, because a lot of the money that was supposed to be devoted to having secure communications has gone into people's pockets. And, you know, we've seen outdated equipment, non-malfunctioning. I think 10 generals have already been killed by the Ukrainians. So the performance of the Russian military is definitely subpar. I think we overestimated their performance. Not only uh, Putin did, but uh, the US intelligence agencies did too. They knew the invasion was coming, but that they thought that the the army would, would do better. So I think that's where the Russians are now. Ukrainians are putting up an amazing fight. I think I agree with Max that in the beginning, I think the US didn't think that the Ukrainians could prevail against the Russians and that, that we would be supporting some kind of insurgency. But that's not where we are now. And certainly the Ukrainians believe that they can defeat the Russians. And Tony Blinken sort of intimated that yesterday in his remarks. Whether that's possible is another question. You do now see some acts of sabotage within Russia itself, obviously not not attributed to anyone. And you have some people even saying there's no reason why the Ukrainians shouldn't bring the fight to Russia since they were invaded, although I think that won't happen yet. I think to answer the other part of your question, from the beginning of this war, the US has been reacting to what the Russians did. They set the agenda. And I think our goalposts for what we want the end state to be have been changing. And I think now, you know, it's possible to conceive of a world where Russia really doesn't gain very much, maybe a little bit more territory in the Donbass, and then it does have to withdraw, at least for now. 
And I agree with Max that that doesn't mean if we have a ceasefire and some kind of peace agreement, we don't know how long that will last, but at least it could last for some time. And therefore, I think, you know, the U.S. goals now are different. And I think they can envisage a Ukraine that sort of survives and remains. It will cost an enormous amount to reconstruct it, but it will be able to function as an independent state. And then, of course, just to add on this, if Finland and Sweden do join NATO, then you have a very different configuration of forces in that part of the world. And, you know, that's also affecting U.S. thinking. Max's uh, theory of, of Putin is that not only will he lie to save face if needed, but that he will be able to successfully lie to save face internally. The pressures that a, a leader in a democracy might feel to be able to bring home something real, some kind of victory, just don't really apply to Putin because it doesn't matter what happens. He'll, he'll say that he won anyway, and everybody will either believe him or at least be, feel compelled to pretend to believe him. For me, that's been one of the big mysteries here. And, and I wonder if you have any additional insight into that has been how much of the truth on the ground is getting through to Putin? How much is the truth getting through to Russian elites? Do you think that he will be able to continue to get away with just saying what he wants and and remaining relatively unchallenged? Or, Or do you think that there is more internal unhappiness with that? The most optimistic scenario I've heard I've heard outlined by some has been this goes so badly for Putin that that finally elites just completely turn against him, and we have a you know color revolution in Russia, uh, which certainly seems like probably a stretch. But but I'm wondering, do you do you see any? Is your take the same as Max, or do you see any additional cracks? And Suzanne, when I come to you, I'd actually love to get your take on that too. So I wouldn't hold your breath to the color revolution in Russia. How much does Putin know? Well, he obviously knows some things. Apparently, he was incredibly angered by the sinking of the Moskva, the totemic, if you like, battleship that the Ukrainians managed to, to sink with their own missiles. And, and apparently that's also fed some of this escalatory rhetoric. And he understands that the army hasn't done as well as it should have. I do not believe that he fully understands the way that Ukrainians feel about this. Uh, he seems to have deluded himself into believing what he wrote in his 5,000-word essay last July that Ukrainians and Russians are one people and the Ukrainians want to be reunited with Russia. So I think he knows something about the situation on the ground, but I do not think he's being told the full extent of it because I think he's surrounded by people who are afraid to tell him the truth and who themselves may not want to know the truth completely, even though we do know that they've arrested a significant number of people from the FSB, the Domestic Intelligence Service, who were responsible for recruiting assets in Ukraine. Now, I agree that he can lie all the time, and he does. And on May the 9th, you know, the upcoming Victory Day, he could stand there in Red Square, bless the tanks, maybe parade some Ukrainian POWs and say, we won. We took Mariupol. We've taken back the Donbass. And a large number of Russians will not know whether that's true or not. So what's interesting is that even independent polling data from Russia shows us that a significant number of Russians still support the war, and that support has gone up. So there's some phenomenon here of people feeling the more besieged we are, the more we support our leader, and we're going to prevail against those Western-backed Nazis in Ukraine. But you've also seen some cracks. For instance, with the sinking of the Moskva, there are a lot of families who are saying, what happened to our sons? Where are they? Tell us what happened to them. And it's a little bit like what happened early on in Putin's presidency when the Kursk 
submarine was sunk and, you know, everyone perished and they didn't come out with the truth for a long time. And there were, at that point, there was much more freedom of expression in Russia than there is now. So there were protests and, and Putin was really shaken by that. So you see the beginnings of questioning among the families of the dead, particularly the people from the ship, about what's really happening. If Russians want to know what's really happening, it's becoming more difficult to do that. But still, if you have a VPN, if you know how to avoid some of the controls there, then you can get more information. But it's still most of the, you know, large parts of the social media and cable, you know, international cable news and things like that are cut off from you. So I think that at the moment, Putin will be able to get away with this so far. I think the more that the sanctions hit Russia and people's prices go up, there's not much food in the in the stores uh, and people feel the pinch. They may also again begin to question why are we suffering from these privations? As long as they believe that this is a war of necessity because the West was threatening Russia, the US through its relationship with Ukraine, then I think it's we shouldn't expect everything to, to break down, nor I think to, to expect that his peers will get together and carry out a palace coup. I mean, it could happen, but it doesn't look likely at the moment. Suzanne, uh, I don't know if you want to start start right there. At, at Penn, you spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about efforts to censor free expression, both in terms of journalism, in terms of the arts. And, and you're welcome to pick up on my earlier questions as well about what is Putin's endgame? What should the U.S.'s endgame be? Do we have an endgame in, in mind? Um, but I'd love to also hear what you're hearing from the people you talk to and, and Penn's network about the degree to which information is or is not getting into Russia at this point. Sure. In terms of endgame, look, I think the one thing that clearly has shifted in the U.S. calculus is that the initial concern about escalation, that providing heavier weapons was going to fan a conflict that otherwise might be sort of tamped down to a certain level, uh, you know, that, that has evaporated. And there's now a different calculus that I think, you know, puts some weight on a scenario where Ukrainian resistance just continues to defy expectations kind of time and again in, uh, in city after city, and that they really can grind this out in a way that nobody thought possible in the beginning. And, you know, it remains to be seen, but the evidence has been sort of on the side of that. And I think for Biden, it's also been a, a kind of a winning strategy to be all in on this, to avoid uh, you know, the recriminations of denying Ukraine means and weaponry that they were, you know, so plaintively asking for in under such dire circumstances and, you know, the ability to rally NATO and Europeans to join in and providing large numbers of howitzers, heavy tanks, you know, all of that sort of a powerful demonstration of force that I think has helped so the U.S. and the West seem to stay on top of the narrative here, seem to be doing more, leaning in, you know, making everything possible, uh, owning a piece of, you know, this valiant story of resistance. And, you know, the question is just how far can that go? Can it go the full distance, you know, and end up in, you know, the, the more optimistic scenarios where there's some portion of the Donbass, maybe that becomes the basis for an agreement, but by and large, 
Ukraine's borders stay relatively intact, their access to the Black Sea uh, is sustained. And so I think that's the, you know, kind of end game question in mind here right now. And I, I question whether the Lloyd Austin comments on, on uh, you know, the intent to weaken Russia, you know, whether that was really intended as some sort of bold statement, it clearly got an enormous amount of pickup. It sort of uh, struck me as, you know, almost a truism. They want us to be weaker. We'd like them to be weaker. A conflict like this is, is is grinding, grinding and draining. We've already seen the toll that it's taken on their generals, on their troops, uh, their need to regroup, the loss of equipment and material. So I'm not so sure he uh, intended to make a headline with that particular phrase. To turn to your question about sort of what we know and understand about public opinion and the flow of information into Russia, it's difficult to say, but even the, the kind of more credible indications are that, you know, in fact, the support for Putin remains quite firm from those polling outlets that are known for greater independence, their findings, you know, when they sort of battle test them to try to pierce through the tendency in an authoritarian country to, you know, and, and, and not just, but uh, to, to answer to a poll the way that you think you should or the way that the political pressures might lead you to do, even notwithstanding sort of that, that filter and overlay looks as if his support remains quite firm and, uh, you know, above the 50% level, even into recent weeks and, you know, all sorts of reasons for that. Obviously, this has not been a free information environment for a very long time. And so, you know, you can argue about the degree to which those opinions are are freely held. But, you know, the support for Putin for many years has been just overwhelming. And uh, we don't see signs of erosion. In terms of people's access to information, you know, it's become severely compromised, you know, particularly with Instagram disappearing from the scene in Russia. Uh, You know, people, if they they have access to VPNs, they can reach beyond and uh, access Western news sources. But Russian state controlled media is has has (laughs) been very tightly constricted during this period. We've seen all just about all of the independent media outlets pull up stakes and shut down. We're working with a number of them on how they preserve themselves for another day outside of the country. You know, great number of journalists, civil society leaders, dissidents, independent thinkers have moved into exile. And so the what was an already very choked off environment for media and information has become that much more suffocating. And I think that that serves Putin for now. Uh, You know, I also think that that calculus can change. People feel the personal consequences of sanctions and the economic damage accumulating over time. That can germinate in new ways. It sounds like for now, the ruble has rebounded and that, that, you know, that pain sort of at the level of individuals being able to acquire basic needs has been somewhat alleviated by state spending. How long can that go on? So, you know, I think those are questions. But uh, overall, you know, he went into this situation with a very tight control over his own populace and public opinion, and he's managed to sustain that so far. 
So this is the point in the podcast where David Rothkopf typically says something kind of mean, like you losers who haven't subscribed to deep state radio should now just give up all hope of having an interesting life and remaining informed because the next 15 minutes of this podcast are only going to be for good human beings, worthwhile human beings who have joined deep state radio. Now, I'm not going to say that. However, this is the moment uh, for our listeners when we're going to take a really short break and we're going to resume after the break for another 15 minutes of back and forth. Uh, We're going to shift a little bit away from Ukraine and Russia to talk about the the French elections, to talk about a number of other broad issues, uh, although I think we're going to be linking all that back to the outlook for Ukraine and Russia. So thank you, those of you who's been with us so far and are now going away. We miss you. We hope that you'll subscribe and be able to be with us for the final 15 minutes. But if not, goodbye. And after the break for our our members, we will be coming right back.